Hello everybody and welcome to Truth Be Told. We have a bit of a hot topic today, original sin. Now this topic can be really contentious. Um, I'm really excited to talk about it because I think it's fascinating. Um, but I believe a lot of the contention that is around this topic is because everyone uses the same name for the concept, original sin, but they mean very different things when they say it. And on top of that, everyone thinks that they know exactly what everyone else means by original sin when really they don't. And this causes a lot of confusion and miscommunication. So this is going to be a bit of a complicated episode. I've rewritten my notes like six different times trying to make it as clear as I can. Um, but essentially, if we can remember that this is a story that is basically about two men and an argument that everyone believes right now, believes has been settled, but is actually still going on. So we're going to go through this concept of original sin today from the historical side of things, which should give us some insight into where this conversation even came from in the first place. Uh, then we'll go from the history of it into what perspectives came out of that history. So uh, what did people believe uh, when this conversation was first going on? And then what have people believed over time? What do people believe now? And then at the end, uh, I hate to call it an opinion piece, but at the end I'll kind of go through what I believe makes the most sense uh, based on my understanding of the arguments as well as what Scripture says. So um, you can take that or leave that. I, I think it makes the most sense. I've, I've done a good amount of study on this, but um, I don't have a corner on the market or anything. So it's not that no other explanation could possibly work. It's just I think this is a better way to think of it than the historical views that have been kind of uh, bantered about for a while. So first we have to get into some baseline definitions because some of you might have never heard about this concept before, and I don't want to leave anybody out. So essentially, original sin, most people understand this concept to be a doctrine which states that the entire human race has sinned and is born in sin by virtue of Adam's choice to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this is primarily the Catholic view, but they don't hold a monopoly on it. A lot of mainstream Christianity also holds this view. So uh, sometimes people can make the mistake and say, oh yeah, what Catholics think about it. It's like, okay, well, they do hold that view and they actually codified that view a while ago, but they are not the only people that have that view. So this is the view that uh, when most people hear the term original sin, this is what they load into their brains, and they assume this is what's being talked about. However, like I mentioned earlier, the conversation has continued on past the time when this definition was the predominant one, and now the term original sin carries a lot of different meanings uh, that can really kind of confuse the conversation if we aren't aware of what all those meanings are. Um, a good analogy of this to help us kind of understand what I'm talking about here is something like the doctrine of hell. So if I were to just say that phrase, doctrine of hell, it shouldn't really give any insight into what that doctrine specifically is. Obviously, it's about hell, but a doctrine is just a believed teaching on a topic. So what exactly do you believe and teach about hell? Uh, some believe it's an eternal burning fire where sinners are tormented forever. Some believe it is just like death or the grave. Some believe that it is separation from God, which is its own kind of torment. 
Some believe that those sent to hell lose all sense of self and they're just kind of adrift in this outer darkness. Um, some believe that a lot of people will go there. Some believe a few will go there. And some believe that none will go there aside from Satan and those that serve him, um, specifically like spiritual beings. So anyways, just saying the doctrine of hell really shouldn't give us any indicator about what a person's doctrine actually is. And original sin is very much like this. Now, it used to be dominated by one view, which is the one that I, I expressed earlier, where all have sinned through Adam and all are guilty of sin by virtue of what he did all those years ago. But it's now a term used to describe a lot of different views. So we have to look deeper at what a person believes about original sin in order to have a meaningful discussion about it. We can't just stop uh, at someone saying, oh yeah, I believe in original sin, and then say, oh, well, I believe you're wrong, or okay, I believe you're right, because there's a lot of different beliefs within this. So first to go through the historical on this topic, as I said before, this really is just a story about two men and an argument that everyone thought was settled but isn't. And those two men are Pelagius and Augustine, or some people say Augustine. I say Augustine, maybe you say Augustine, I'm sorry if that's going to bother you the rest of the time. But anyway, so Augustine's pretty famous. Uh, most people either know about him or his teachings or at least have, have heard of him or are familiar with his name to an extent. He wrote the works um, on Christian doctrine and confessions that are still really, really popular today. So he was a theologian. For those of you that aren't aware of Augustine at all, he was a theologian and a philosopher who was also the bishop of a region called Hippo in Roman-ruled northern Africa. And he actually started his life out uh, more atheistic, and he was baptized into Christianity later in 386. So he, he grew in prominence over time, and he was a smart guy. Honestly, I, I think uh, he kind of gets a bad rap sometimes. I don't agree with a lot of things that he wrote, but he was incredibly smart. And I know... Uh, the early church fathers can kind of get taken a bit too seriously. Sometimes people will elevate them to the same level of uh, authority as the apostles. I don't agree with that at all. But I do believe that there were some intelligent people amongst them that uh, some things can be learned from. So I, I don't think there's a point in throwing the baby out with the, the bathwater of, of church heresy, I guess you could say. Um, but yeah, Augustine was an intelligent man. And even though... Ultimately, as we're going to see, I'm not going to agree with his view of original sin. I don't want this to be a session of bashing this guy because a lot of people, uh, when they go to this topic, they're like, oh man, Augustine was just horrible. Or even even on the other side, oh, Pelagius was just horrible. And they just hate on these two guys. It's like they were smart people trying to work out things that they didn't understand. So I applaud them for doing the work, uh, even if I end up disagreeing with them in the end. And also, I don't want people to mistake Augustine for, oh, he's the Catholic guy. Now, the Catholic Church did eventually um, codify his view on original sin, but it wasn't that he, like, if you had said, oh, are you part of the uh, Roman Catholic Church, Augustine would not have said that he was, because that wasn't even a thing that was around at the time. Generally, Christianity was called Catholic at this time because it just meant the universal church, which is what the word Catholic means. So that's a little bit about Augustine. Um, Pelagius is a little bit more difficult to track down, primarily because he kind of lost in this conflict with Augustine. Um, and, you know, history is written by the victors. So 
But we do know that he was a British monk and he was a theologian at the exact same time as Augustine. They were actually born in the same year, but a lot less is known about him. A lot of uh, what we do know about him actually comes from uh, theologians that were contemporary with him that actually opposed him. So they would write things about him in their letters to him or about him. And we know a lot of things about him that way. But even then, it's like, how much credence do you want to give to his opposition to actually give us facts about him. So we do know some things, but it is pretty limited. Um, another thing that we know is that he eventually moved to Rome. And as the story goes, he saw the Roman Christians behaving really badly there. And he personally lived a more ascetic lifestyle, meaning um, he didn't seek anything pleasurable for himself. He lived with very little money. Um, did not want comfort, and he kind of seemed to be influenced by that Gnostic idea that the physical is evil and the, the spiritual is is good or of God. And this kind of might seem a little bit irrelevant, but actually when we get to what his understanding of original sin was, it seems to be all affected by his life and his upbringing and his view of the lack of morality in Roman Christians. So these two men, um, how do they come in contact? Well, basically what happened, as far as anybody can tell, is that Pelagius was passing through Augustine's town and decided to pay him a visit. Augustine was already pretty famous at this point. Um, Pelagius was more up and coming. But Augustine was out of town. And so Pelagius left a really nice letter for him, expressing a desire to meet him and an admiration for him. They weren't even really talking about theology at this point. It was just like, oh, I've heard of you and I'd, I'd love to meet you. So later, Augustine actually responded to that letter, also very nicely, and then things kind of took a bit of a turn. Um, between the years of 410 and 416, they fell into these heated arguments of letters back and forth. Now, it's two theologians getting to know each other, and so naturally, theology became uh, the topic of conversation. And of chief concern in these exchanges was the state of mankind. And this was a question that had been wondered about for a long time. This wasn't isolated to just them. A lot of times if you look up state of mankind or original sin or nature of man, you'll go back to this time in the early 400s. It's like, oh, this was kind of the beginning of it. That's not true. This was a question that had been going on for a while. It's just that no formal teaching had been accepted on it until this debate. So, and this is really how most teachings got started in Christianity. Um, questions needed answers, and so answers were proposed and then debated over. Now, I don't claim that all answers accepted throughout church history were correct. I think there's very clear instances of, okay, the wrong thing uh, went through there. But this is how certain beliefs about certain things were formed. And uh, even in the Bible, you can see this is true. Some of what we have in the Gospels is due to questions the disciples had for Jesus. So the primary questions that were coming up around the state of man, even prior to this discussion between Augustine and Pelagius, were things like, um, what did Paul mean when he said, through one man, sin entered into the world? That's found in Romans 5. We'll go over that a little bit later. Or what exactly did happen when Adam sinned by eating of the fruit? Did it affect us in any way? And also, what is the nature of man? Are we inherently good or are we inherently evil? So with these questions came a lot of discussion, kind of culminating in this one big argumentative discussion between Pelagius and Augustine. So what became of these argumentative letters back and forth? Um, 
basically we have two competing views on what was called original sin, which is literally just Adam's sin. Um, it's interesting that Augustine and Pelagius never argued whether or not Adam sinned or was even the first man to sin, which is where the words original sin come from. Obviously, I think some people have a problem with this term because they know from the Bible that iniquity was found in Satan way before Adam sinned. Um, but this term doesn't necessarily mean first sin, but the origin of sin. And honestly, you might take further issue with that because Satan influenced Eve to take the fruit. But this is actually why Adam is said to have the original sin, because he was not deceived. 1 Timothy 2.14 tells us this. He willfully sinned against God. So it's interesting that that distinction is made. And also Paul supports this when he said that through one man, sin entered into the world. So at least in some sense, Adam is responsible for sin entering into the world. Obviously, Satan uh, sinned before Adam, iniquity was found in him before Adam, and he can influence, but he did not force Adam's hand. So all this to say that um, Augustine and Pelagius would have both agreed that there was an original sin, they just disagreed on what that meant, just like we can today. So we're kind of going through the same exact thing uh, that they are going through all the way back then. We're still going through that now, and a lot of people are still going through that now. So the two views. What are the two views that came out of this discussion? We're going to first go over the Pelagian view, and then we will go over the Augustinian view. So essentially, Pelagius viewed humanity as basically good in nature. And he also viewed Adam as an example to mankind only. There wasn't really any effect that Adam's sin had. He was just an example of kind of what not to do, a way that humans could follow. The living example of uh, death versus Christ's example of life. And he also believed that humankind can potentially live a good and sinless life, but that they don't because they're always following Adam's example. So in order to attain salvation, in his view, one just had to follow Christ's example instead. Um, most people claim he was inspired by the corruption he saw in Christians who claimed that they were under grace, and so they kind of continue to sin, which is exactly what Paul preaches against. Shall we continue in iniquity that grace may abound? Certainly not. Uh, they kind of forgot that verse. And He's right that this is not correct thinking. Like, this is not a good view of grace. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a fantastic author um, during the time of World War II, he called this in his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, cheap grace. And it's not cheap in how it's, it's attained, right? Christ still had to die uh, in this view of grace, but it's how it's treated after you have it. So yes, Christ died for me and offered salvation as a gift, but that means it's my gift and I can do what I want with it, no questions asked. And so this is what he called cheap grace. And this is what Pelagius was seeing in the Roman Christians. Um, so that cheap grace and, and this sort of thinking was beginning to kind of run rampant in the early 400s. And so Pelagius wanted to try and explain to everyone that they still had a moral law to uphold and abide by. Now, there are parts of this thinking that I believe are absolutely true. Um, however, I just think that kind of in the heat of the debate, he added more and more to his teaching that I began to disagree with more and more. So, for example, I believe that people have free will. Pelagius was 
really, really big on promoting human free will. I don't believe in irresistible grace, which is kind of a Calvinistic thought, meaning that once God calls you, you can't even resist it if you tried. Um, I believe that people are not so depraved that they've lost the image of God. I believe that we still do have the image of God, and I believe that we have value. Um, what else? I believe that your faith without your works is dead, uh, as, as James talks about. I just stop short of saying that mankind is inherently good or that we can reach our own salvation through following Christ's example. I do believe we have to follow Christ's example, but that's not how we attain salvation. That specifically is a gift from God. So I also don't believe that Adam was just a bad example for us to follow and that that's all his action did to affect mankind. I do believe there was a broader effect that we're going to talk about later. So I don't exactly ascribe to the Pelagian view, even though I believe that he had a lot of things that I think were right thinking, even if his conclusions were a bit off. So what about the Augustinian view? Um, he basically taught something much more close to the modern understanding of original sin. Obviously, that's where that doctrine comes from, was Augustine's view. And that most people think of this, uh, like I said, when they think about Catholics, but uh, it's not just Catholics. So he believed that mankind is born with a sinful nature that gets passed from Adam to the rest of humanity. Uh, this is where terms like the fall come from. It was the fall of mankind because uh, Adam sinned, so then we all fall in sin through Adam. He also taught, uh, less popular, he also taught that even after Christ's sacrifice, we remain stained by original sin until after death, until after our change comes. So in his view, we are guilty and accountable for Adam's sin, and that Adam wasn't just an example for mankind, but he was representative of all mankind, and so he was able to make a decision on our behalf and that we are guilty uh, for that decision. Now, just like in Pelagius's view, there are parts of Augustinian thought that I agree with, even though I don't subscribe to the whole ideology. Um, for example, I do believe that Adam's sin of taking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a choice that affected all of mankind, not just himself. Um, it's interesting to me that this view actually gives the better support for there having been a historical Adam, which I also believe is true. Um, the Pelagian view doesn't really require that we're all after the lineage of Adam um, because there's nothing passed down. In the Augustinian view, Adam is the biological forefather of all of humanity, which is why that sin has affected all of mankind. So I, I believe in that premise, but I just don't believe where he went with it. I don't believe that the sin is passed down biologically to the rest of mankind, um, and the guilt for that sin is passed down either. Now, to Augustine's credit, he must have absolutely believed what he taught because it is by far the harder stance to take to try and convince others of. So think about it like Pelagius's view was humans are basically good. You just have to choose good. And Augustine's view was no, you are evil and you also have to do good. So you're morally evil at your core because of a decision made thousands of years ago by someone else and he had to convince people of that. I think he wouldn't have taken the stance if he really didn't believe it. So um, we'll give him that at, at least. I, I do want to make you aware um, in this one debate, there is actually a third option between Augustinian thought and Pelagian thought, and it is called semi-Pelagian. 
but this is not really a discussion on original sin. It actually deals more with something called soteriology or um, the doctrine of salvation. Is It's kind of a fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. So Augustinian thought leans more towards us having nothing to do with our salvation and nothing to do with our calling, and we don't even have the ability to answer the call of God. It's just we are kind of forced into accepting it due to God's grace. Um, it runs into difficulty with free choice arguments a lot, um, but I do know a lot of people that have reconciled that, so it's not like you can't possibly think that apart from free will but or in cooperation with free will, but I do think it is more difficult. Um, Pelagianism states that we can attain salvation apart from grace, meaning um, you can actually do enough to attain salvation. So kind of salvation by works, which I don't agree with. And then semi-Pelagianism states that our initial faith is a choice we make, but then us growing in faith is an act of God's grace. So needless to say, this isn't really the focus of the issue on sin itself. So we're not going to go into it much today. It's just something I think we should be aware of, at least the terminology, um, because as we discuss this with people going forward, if we do, and someone asks where you stand, Pelagian or Augustinian, and if you answer neither, like I personally would, then they might assume that you or I are semi-Pelagian, even though it really isn't about original sin as much as it is about salvation. Anyway, so back to the argument. What happened? So they had these two views. They argued about it back and forth. Um, what was the outcome? So I think it's important to know that these letters were not letters like we think of today. They were not personal letters written to someone in the privacy of their home. Think more like public proclamations. So everybody knew what was going on. These were philosophers and thinkers and teachers. And so they were sharing this with other people and then refuting it in front of their respective congregations or groups that they preached to. So these were very public. Um, there were those on Pelagius' side and also those on Augustine's side. It became really, really contentious. Um, actually, another famous church father, Jerome, ended up taking the side of Augustine, and he joined in the letter writing back and forth. And eventually the organized church decided to take a stance themselves, and they labeled Pelagius a heretic in 431 AD. So quite a while after these letters were circulating, they kind of got together and were like, okay, we got to take a stand on this. And they chose that Pelagius would lose. And not only would he lose, he would be deemed heretic, which kind of seems crazy for just like, I think there's people that have wrong thought in my view. And I would say, okay, they have wrong thought. Um, but the fact that they went as far as labeling him a heretic is like, not only do you have wrong thought, your wrong thought leads you so far away from correct thinking that you can't even be labeled a believer anymore. I think that's kind of kind of extreme. But anyways, um, Pelagius conceded. He kind of faded into history. And there's not a lot known about him after this, aside from the fact that he died in, in northern Africa, most likely Egypt, which was uh, still ruled by Rome. And some still carried on believing his view on original sin. Um, actually, even now, a lot of people claim to be Pelagian in thought. Um, so despite it being officially labeled heresy, you can still find uh, Pelagian thinkers. Now, I wanted to go over um, a few interesting things to note about these two people and their two views, kind of where they came from, like a little bit of background on their views. Because to me, it's, it's really interesting 
that Pelagius saw the corruption within Christianity in Rome, which informed and influenced his message about basically uh, attaining salvation through works. But also, he believed in the inherent goodness of humanity, which is really interesting considering all the corruption he saw and the fact that he lived a more ascetic lifestyle, denying the physical, um, only claiming the spiritual was of God, and yet believing in the inherent goodness of the nature of man. I think this is really interesting. It seems like these ideas are on opposite ends of the spectrum, and yet he was able to reconcile them. And he almost seems like the yin to the yang of Augustine, because it's also interesting that Augustine, even though he wasn't ascetic at this time, later in life he did kind of lean a little bit more Gnostic. He seemed to be more inspired by Gnostic writers and teachers, but not at this time. Uh, he began to teach that the sin of Adam was passed down through the corrupt practice of sexual intercourse. So obviously corrupt in his view. Um, he kind of thought that sex prior to Adam's sin was much more practical and it was less pleasurable. Uh, he viewed it as an exchange of DNA, not really an enjoyable experience. And actually the fact that it was enjoyable to him made it seem corrupted. And so he reasoned that that was how sin was transmitted from Adam to all of mankind. Um, but it's interesting because he wasn't against the physical and yet this physical act of sex he deemed as corrupt. And so it kind of seems like Pelagius and Augustine are like on opposite ends of the spectrum, but also have so much in common, just not exactly on the same points. Um, also a note about Augustine's view of the corruption of sexual intercourse and that being how sin was transmitted. I read this really interesting article in preparation for a paper that I did on this exact topic recently for school. And it was written by a woman named Christina Ritchie, and she is an expert on assisted reproductive technologies. And this was something that was unfathomable to Augustine when he made his claim that sin is passed through sex. But if this is true, does that mean that those who are born without the act of sex are sinless? Like they're free from that stain of original guilt. Um, I think Augustine would say no. Uh, they're not, but he'd have to come up with a new theory then of how it is transmitted. Now, obviously, not everyone who ascribes to the Augustinian view of original sin still claims that sex is corrupt or evil, but the Catholic Church still does teach that this is how it's transmitted to the next generation of humans. Now, I bring this up not because I think it single-handedly ruins Augustine's thought on original sin. It doesn't. All he would have to do if he were alive today would be to recognize this information, realize that sex as a, as a transmitter for sin would not be applicable to all of mankind, and then he would have to adjust his theory or change his theory. So it doesn't ruin his thought completely. It just goes to show that he was a limited human being with limited understanding. Yes, he was very smart, but he didn't know everything. He made mistakes. So if you are someone who has ascribed to this view out of respect for Augustine or maybe a disrespect for yourself because you think, well, smarter people than me have discussed this forever and they came to this conclusion, so who am I to question it? Please question it. That's a good thing to do. It's a good study method. Um, reminds me of the Bereans. They questioned everything to see if it was true. So it's not wrong to question it. I understand questioning your own intelligence sometimes, um, but Paul actually talks about that too in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. 
Starting in verse 26, it says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And this isn't because he wants to make a fool of you, but he wants to show his power through you. So you might not feel like the smartest, you might not feel like the mightiest, you might not feel like the clearest thinker, but if God reveals something to you, like there's nothing wrong with uh, questioning things and hoping that he leads you through his Holy Spirit. So definitely question things, do not underestimate yourself or just kind of give in to an argument because you believe that someone smarter than you must have figured it out already. Anyways, back to the story. So after Pelagius faded into history, his teachings were actually brought back into question several times. So the debate didn't end even after his part in the story kind of ended. Um, and this is something I think we really need to get across into our heads because most people will look up the story and they say, okay, the debate ended there when he was labeled a heretic. I just am left to choose a side. But the debate did not end. They continued to bring his, his thoughts before um, councils and make decisions on uh, what they thought about what he used to teach. So anyways, uh, it didn't really work out. Each time he was brought before um, different tribunals, he was deemed a heretic again. And actually, he himself wasn't even brought back before people. Um, just his teachings were. So he was deemed a heretic several times over without even being around to defend himself. But it wasn't actually until the 16th century that Augustine's view of original sin was actually codified as a doctrine of the Catholic Church and then has remained that way ever since then. I believe it was the Council of Trent where this happened. So Augustine wins, Pelagius loses, and they've put several nails in that coffin. Then how do I claim that the conversation is still going on or has still gone on past that time? If Pelagius lost, and Augustine clearly won several times over. Um, are we not justified in saying that when we hear the phrase original sin, the Augustinian or modern Catholic view should come into our minds? I still think, no, we're not justified in saying that because there are a few glaring issues with Augustine's view that we'll go over now, as well as several points for discussion that theologians have continued to bring up over time that eventually... Uh, actually shifted the terminology original sin to mean not just Augustinian view, but also more modern views that don't follow Augustine or Pelagius. So I'm going to go over three things, uh, three issues that I find with Augustine's view that have been kind of talked about for a long time now, even up into the modern day. So first, the first problem is that Augustine might not have done his due diligence to the actual manuscript evidence for his theory. Typically, he was a fan of Greek manuscripts when studying scripture, but it seems that uh, in his formation of this theory, he rarely, if ever, consulted the Greek, and instead he only drew from the Latin text. So why is this a problem? It's like, well, who cares if he uses this Bible or that Bible? Well, it's a big problem, actually, because in Romans 5.12, which is like the central verse for his doctrine on original sin, the Latin translation reads this, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus was spread to all men. 
The Greek translation, though, reads this, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death was spread to all men. So the Greek includes this word death, while the Latin omits the word death. And so the Greek shows that it was death that was spread to all men, while the Latin text makes it seem as if sin itself was spread to all men. This is totally different. So if Augustine had consulted the Greek like he typically did, he might have had a different thought. And actually, um, Gerald Bonner, who is the guy who wrote the biography on Augustine, he wrote about this absence of Greek study, and he said that Augustine might have been so absorbed by his theory that he did not give it the critical examination which it required. So first off, just from the text itself, which is like the base of the argument you can ever start with is scripture, it seems that Augustine might have had some flaws, or at least some biases, that he didn't really try to get rid of. The second thing, um, many people, well after this became a subject for debate, into today's time even, ask the question, why would a just God condemn others as guilty with the sin of another person? They notice that if you read on into the end of the verse, end of verse 12 in chapter 5, it says that death spread to all men because all sinned. It's interesting. It's in the same verse, but it seems like we're looking for a reason. Well, why did death spread to the to the whole world? Why did sin spread to the whole world? If you're reading the Latin text, it says so because all sinned. Now it's true that it says in verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is a type of him who was to come. So we still have to deal with what seems to be here an injustice. But the fact that it is death that is spreading rather than sin itself is very different and really, really changes things. How so? How does it change things? I think that in a small way, at least, we can reconcile in our heads this version of things to an extent. So if someone murders me, they have sinned, but I have suffered the consequence of death. I'm not guilty of that person's action, but I can still suffer the consequence of someone else's choice in this way. This is a difference between the terms penalty, consequence, and guilt, or responsibility, if you'd rather that word. So the penalty for sin we know is death. The wages for sin is death. The Bible tells us that. The consequences of sin, though, can be a number of different things based on the action itself such as me dying, that's a consequence of another person's sin, and I can face that consequence. But the guilt or responsibility for that sin is squarely with the person who enacts the sin. That has always been true. So the person that murdered me faces the penalty of arrest, trial, and execution if convicted of uh, that sin or that, that crime. And the consequence of sin is experienced by both me who was murdered, as well as my family who had missed me or my friends who had missed me, whatever. And also the person who committed the murder itself. They have consequences to their actions. But the guilt belongs only to the person who committed the crime. That person's son is not a murderer after them. That's just not how it works. So the distinction between original sin and original guilt, which we'll talk about a lot more in a little bit, was not something that had separate terms in Augustine's time. 
Guilt was just a part of sin, and so it was part of his ideology. If you're looking up original sin and want to know where you stand, you come across the story of Augustine and Pelagius, and you see that Augustine believes you are guilty for Adam's sin, you might assume that you lean more Pelagian. But in modern terms, if you can affirm original sin, meaning that Adam did sin, he committed a sin that had effect on all of mankind, without affirming original guilt, meaning that his guilt was passed down to you biologically, then that changes the conversation a lot. And that's what a lot of people do, especially in evangelical Christianity. They will affirm original sin, but not affirm original guilt or that guilt was passed down to you. So that is a huge way in which the conversation has changed into modern times that we should be aware of. So the third thing, third problem with Augustine's view that I see is that some of the examples used to defend the Augustinian view of original sin seem very compelling initially, but do not follow logically. So the first time that I actually kind of began being plagued with questions about this topic, again, coming from a background that has never affirmed original sin ever, and then running into arguments that I thought, wow, that's actually, I don't know how to refute that. Um, It was when I read this book called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel by Christopher Yuan. I actually interviewed him a few months back on the topic of homosexuality and singleness and basically on his book, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. It was a really good interview. I respect the man quite a bit. Um, The book was great. Um, But in this book, he took a long time explaining his view on original sin, which follows much more closely to the Augustinian view. So he went through some objections, namely that it isn't fair that I'm guilty of someone else's sin inherently at birth. That's what we talked about in point two. Um, But his point, which Augustine also talked about to refute that, was that it's also not fair that Christ's righteousness was spread to all of mankind either. And this kind of threw me for a loop. I I was thinking, man, he's kind of right. God's mercy is not fair. It's almost like an injustice, but it's in our favor. So we're more than willing to accept that with no trouble. However, I continued thinking about this and I realized it's really simple. Christ's righteousness does not cover all of mankind. I know that sounds almost heretical, but it does not cover those who have not accepted his sacrifice. You can't be under his sacrifice until you've accepted it. So to accept his his righteousness or his sacrifice, I have to make an intelligent choice. And even if you're someone who believes in infant baptism, I would say, why bother? If Christ's righteousness spread to all men, the same as Adam's sin did, why bother with infant baptism? Because it just seems to be inherent from the family, right? So if my great ancestor accepts Christ's sacrifice, that just spreads to me. No one really believes that. But Romans 5 continues on saying that Christ's sacrifice was not like Adam's sin and that it was actually more powerful. So if it's more powerful than Adam's sin, how is it that Adam's sin is placed squarely on the shoulders of every child being born, but acceptance of Christ's sacrifice is only obtained through baptism, which I personally believe should be done on mature adults and not children, but the point still stands. If you believe it's only at infant baptism that his sacrifice is placed over you, well then how can you say it's more powerful than Adam's sin? which was inherent at birth. 
Anyway, so basically to sum this all up, if accepting Christ's righteousness is a choice that I have to make, and in every other circumstance, sin is also a choice that I have to make, why is it that this time the guilt is on me for a choice that I never made? It doesn't seem to follow. It doesn't seem to be consistent um, with God's way of being, but it also just doesn't seem to be a consistent argument that, well, of course it's not fair that I'm guilty of Adam's sin, but it's also not fair that Christ's righteousness covers all of mankind. Well, again, it's a flawed argument because it doesn't cover all of mankind. It covers those who make a choice to follow Christ. All right, so what do we conclude from all of this? Now that we've gone over the history and the different views and the problems with the views, what do we conclude? Because it seems like we're left with nothing, right? It's either Augustine's view or Pelagius's view, and those are the only two arguments, so... How can we not affirm either of those things and actually have a view that makes sense? Well, it should be clear that I don't believe in Augustine's view of original sin, but it should also be clear that I don't believe in the Pelagian view of original sin. So what do I believe? Um, I believe in the more modern understanding that original sin and original guilt are separate things, which we talked about a little bit earlier. And if we work under this premise uh, I think we can reconcile all of what Paul said in Romans 5 with the story of Adam eating of the fruit, as well as what is said about our nature throughout the Bible, as well as what is said about God's nature throughout the Bible. Um, it's true that in Numbers 14, verse 18, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. But he also says in Ezekiel 18.20, The soul whose sins shall die, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So I think we can uh, reconcile these, all of these things um, if we just take the following view. And I think the answer lies in what God intended to do from the outset, and also what sin is, really, uh, inherently. Most would not deny that God wanted to create a family. From the outset, that is why he created mankind. He wanted to create a family. And the Bible is full of imagery of families from us being heirs with Christ to God being our father, Christ being our brother, to us being called children of God, and the list goes on and on. So Adam and Eve were given a chance to be a part of that family. They even had access to the tree of life. They had communion with, with God. Uh, they were obedient to him. And because of this, they were able to live and reign with him, as we all hope to someday, as part of his family. However, when Adam willfully took of the fruit without being deceived, he made a free will choice to separate himself from that family. And this is what sin is. It separates us from God. But this choice specifically separated him in a way that broke that familial relationship, which is what Christ came to set right. He set right um, not only the forgiveness of our sins, which is justification, but also he brought us back into that relationship with God um, through reconciliation. So both of these things are present in what Christ did for us. So Adam had the same choice set before him that everyone else does, life and death, choose life, and Adam did not. He chose death. He chose his own way. He chose doing what was right in his own eyes. 
He chose leading himself rather than being led by God. And the same thing that we see happening over and over and over again throughout the Bible in all of human history, Adam also made that choice. Now, we all know that the wages or penalty of sin is death. The consequences of sin are dependent upon the sin itself, and the guilt lies on the person who committed it. We went over that a little bit earlier. Now, not only did Adam now owe the penalty for sin, which is death, but he no longer had access to the tree of life. This was a consequence. He made a choice not to be led by God, but to lead himself. And essentially, he separated himself then from the family of God that he had been born into. The penalty for sin, we need to remember, is not eternal death. Some people get that confused in their minds. It is just death. And it has been appointed for all men to die once. However, without that familial relationship with God, we no longer have access to that tree of life. We are appointed to one death through Adam's choice, and we're unable to access life again unless it's through Jesus Christ reconciling us back into that God family. Um, I think about it like this. I think this is a helpful analogy. Imagine there's a king and he has a son and that son is an heir to the kingdom. Then the son, rather than remaining an heir, abdicates the throne because he believes he has found something else that he wants instead. Do the children of that prince who abdicated the throne still have claim on the throne anymore? No, they don't. The consequence of that prince's decision still affects them. And this is what has happened to us. We no longer have access to that tree of life because Adam was removed from the garden and forced to have his family, which includes us, outside of the garden. So Adam was that prince that abdicated the throne. He gave up his sonship, essentially, or he gave up his his uh, ability to be an heir of the kingdom of God. And so now us, biological descendants of Adam, are no longer in line to be heirs of that same kingdom until Jesus Christ came as a direct heir of God, the heir to all things, he came as that heir to reconcile us back to God, to bring all the sons of Adam back into that familiar relationship if we would so choose. We can still choose the way of Adam. We can still make that choice and not accept Christ's sacrifice for us. But what Christ's sacrifice did is not only does it have the power to remove our personal sins or forgive us our personal sins, it also has the power to reconcile us back to God. So Adam made a choice that did affect all of mankind in the sense that he made a choice for his family going forward to lead themselves, not be led by God, and to break that familiar relationship between God and man. Christ came, as it says in Romans 5, to restore that connection between God and man, to reconcile us to God, to bring us back into that family, and now we are heirs again. We are sons of God. We are children of God. So that's my theory. That is how I see everything being able to be reconciled um, because we are biological descendants from Adam in my view. And his choice did affect mankind, not just as an example of evil or as an influence over others to do evil, but specifically as a break in that familiar relationship with God. 
And it also offers some clarity on how God can remain just because um, if we accept this view, it is not God imputing guilt onto us for someone else's sin. It is a consequence of someone else's sin um, being placed onto us by virtue of the sin that was committed. And this also goes a long way in explaining um, a doctrine of like infant salvation. Um, if you take an Augustinian view, then you have to say that a baby that dies is guilty of original sin and faces the penalty of that sin, which is death. Or in most Augustinian thinking, their view would be that the baby goes to hell, um, which certainly seems terribly unjust of God and, and completely unfair. If you don't take Augustine's view and you take a more Pelagian view of things, then that baby has no effect from Adam's sin at all. And so all babies um, earn that final reward without having actually done anything because they've never transgressed the law one time. And so they have accepted somehow Jesus Christ's sacrifice without actually being aware of who Jesus Christ is or what he did for them. And also they wouldn't even really need that sacrifice because they have never sinned or they've never had um, any effect of sin placed on them. And this also doesn't make sense with scripture because it says Jesus Christ died once for all. Not all who need it, but all. So it's clear that everybody needs Christ's sacrifice. Um, whether you're an infant or whether you are 85 years old and have spent your entire life sinning. Everybody needs Christ's sacrifice. It's just, what do they need it for? Um, an infant has not had an opportunity to make a conscious decision to sin. And I also reject the idea that God has placed the guilt of another person onto that baby. But if we understand original sin to be a choice that Adam made to separate mankind from the family of God, then that child needs Christ's sacrifice in order to be reconciled back into that family. In my view, everybody will have an opportunity to know God's way at some point in time, and that includes uh, infants who die in childbirth or um, at a very young age, but it does not make them first fruits or it does not make them um, benefactors of Christ's sacrifice when they didn't understand the sacrifice to begin with. So not first fruits, but still they will have an opportunity to know God, to know Jesus Christ, and to accept his sacrifice for them, to reconcile them back into that God family. And again, that deals a lot more with soteriology or doctrine of salvation, which we're not really going into too much today, but uh, it is definitely connected. So I just wanted to kind of explain all the ways in which I think my theory kind of um, covers a lot of bases and reconciles a lot of concepts. So to close, I'd like to kind of summarize a little bit. Um, this entire discussion comes down to essentially two men and an argument that everybody believes is over, but really is continuing on even to this day. Um, so we have the Augustinian view where mankind is evil and they are sinners from birth by virtue of Adam's sin of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we have the Pelagian view where mankind is inherently good and they can choose whether to follow Adam's way or to follow Christ's way, either earning themselves death or earning themselves salvation. But this, again, is not where the argument ends. This is not where the discussion closes. That is uh, fallacy in reasoning. 
The argument has continued on, the discussion has continued on, and now the words original sin do not have to equate to the Augustinian view. Original sin, as I believe it, can just mean that Adam did sin and that that sin did affect the rest of mankind. The guilt was not passed down to mankind, but the effect of that sin did affect mankind as biological heirs of Adam. So Adam chose to no longer be an heir of the kingdom of God. He chose to create his own path, his own way, to follow his own reasoning by virtue of eating that fruit. And so we are now heirs of this world, this drowning world that is not going to last, this corrupt and evil world that is just on its way out. Fortunately, Christ came not only to justify us, to remove our sins and to forgive us our sins, but also to reconcile us to God the Father and himself so that we can be in that right familial relationship with him again, so that we can be heirs of the kingdom along with Jesus Christ, our older brother. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to read one last verse that I think brings a lot of clarity to this. I think that um, it really supports my theory, but it also is something that probably should have been read by Augustine and Pelagius to um, really get a fullness of what Paul was talking about uh, in Romans 5. I'm actually going to be reading from Romans 8, but I think the concepts are directly connected to show what's going on in the human world and uh, what's going on with the relationship between mankind and God. I think this verse really, really highlights it well. And, you know, I'm not trying to harsh on Augustine and Pelagius. I think they were at a time when access to the Bible was not quite as readily available as we have it. So they might have had a manuscript that they were studying and uh, trying to gain some clarity on. So they would read it and reread it, and they would try and do verse upon verse, line upon line, precept on precept, but it was probably much harder than it is for us today. So perhaps they were just not really thinking of this verse, or they didn't really connect the two ideas, but I do think that they are directly connected. So Romans 8, and I'm going to be reading from verse 12 and probably through to verse 17. So it says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption or sonship is a more appropriate term there, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So this is really the clearest way that I can put my theory. We were made to be heirs of God and heirs with Christ. And Adam broke that family relationship with God so that now all those that come after him still need reconciled to God. It does not mean that we are guilty of Adam's sin, but that his sin did have an effect on mankind that lasts even through today. Fortunately, we have Christ's sacrifice to bring us back into that right relationship and make us heirs once again and children of God. 
Thank you all so much for sticking with me. I know this is a dense topic. Um, for some of you, it might take a few times to listen through um, just because it probably gets annoying to hear my voice for so long. But I do appreciate it. I hope you found it valuable and uh, I hope it shed a little bit of light on not only the history of original sin, but also where the teaching is kind of at today and some of the different views and things that have come from all the way back in the early 400s AD all the way until now. If I could leave you with just one thought, um, it would be whether you agree with my theory or not, um, don't get trapped in an either-or scenario within theology. Oftentimes people will want to make it seem like you either believe this or you believe that on a certain topic, and that's a topic that has been around for a long, long time, so no one thinks that there could be any other view. But if you just do a little bit of study or a little bit of thinking, you might come up with a different view, or you might see that other people have come up with a host of different views. So don't assume that there's only two ways of thinking on any given topic, and uh, don't think that you're cornered into believing one of those things. The Bible is incredibly complex, but through God's Spirit, we should be able to discern the right and true things that are written in there for us. Thank you very much once again for listening. Until next time, keep on reading your Bibles, keep on thinking critically about them, and keep on applying the truths that we learn here to your lives. Thanks, everyone.